0: It's good to be with everyone this morning. Just a couple quick things before we dive into the sermon. First, if you're new with us, we're glad that you're here. We would encourage, if you're new and want to get connected with us, there's a a welcome, a white welcome table right out in the lobby, and there's a little Get Connected card right there on the table. You'll grab that, fill that out. We have a gift for you, and we'd love to get you connected uh, and follow up with you. And and jumping off of the sermon last week, last week we talked all about the life and the community of the church, and we launched uh, a vision for life groups here at Crossroads. And so if you didn't sign up to get connected to one, there are still sign-ups in the lobby. I truly believe this will be a way to to grow as disciples in both fellowship and fellowship. So I would encourage you uh, to get signed up there as well. And so we're going to dive in, and we've been in a series all about the local church. We started by defining the church, considering what the church was, but then we looked over the consecutive weeks at what the church does. We looked at the mission of the church, that the church exists to make disciples, and then we looked at the life for the community. What does it look like for the church to be the church within the walls we looked at the outreach and the inreach but this morning we consider the upreach the worship of the church so find if you haven't already John chapter 4 John chapter 4 and this is really a famous passage where Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well and Jesus has offered her living waters of eternal life and he's exposed her adultery that She's had five husbands, and the the man she's with now that she's living with is not her husband. And in this conversation, Jesus gets at the core of what worship is. So find John chapter 4. We'll read from verse 20 to 24. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. But Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This is the word of God. If you've been in churches very long, you know that worship is actually a very controversial topic for a lot of folks. Have you ever heard of the worship wars? You ever seen churches split over whether to sing hymns or contemporary music, whether to dress in suit and tie or come relaxed and as they are, or whether to have the lights on or the lights off. If you've never been in a church like that, that's really good. But some of us have been in places where this is a big deal. People get all worked up about all of these parts of worship. You'll hear one side say, well, if you want to reach Young people, you need hip music, right? But then you'll have the other side that'll go, well, what about the transcendence and the timelessness of the hymns of the faith? And sometimes we act as if the date of the song is what somehow makes it a good song, or that the particular group that likes it is what's most important, while others simply want to do whatever the opposite of what their parents' church did. Some folks see an extreme that all they want to do is go to the other extreme, if possible. That's that's just a little note about human nature. We're prone to extremes and to go into the opposite extreme of the one that we don't like. But there really is much more important questions about worship than lights on, lights off, what you wear, or what the date of the song you sang, what date it was written. There there really are all, all sorts of side issues, but... The real question is, what does God want? (laughs) The best question for us to consider is, what does God want from our worship? And we'll come to find out that the lights and the clothes and the dates the songs were written really aren't all that important at all. But that God is something far deeper for us to consider when we consider worship. Consider first Jesus here shows us in John 4 that worship wars are not a new thing. He's actually speaking to a worship war that was going on in his own day, and we come to find out that this wasn't a war over worship style, over lighting. There's not a verse about lights and sound equipment in the Bible and whether to have them or not. But rather, we come that there are much larger issues at play. Here's our central point this morning. God desires true worship. That's our point. God desires true worship. And in this passage, we get answers to five big questions that help us to understand what true worship is. So let's consider these five questions together. First, the big question, what is worship? What is worship? Let me tell you. I I just randomly went to my shelf, my bookshelf today, and I picked my bookshelf this week and I I pulled off about four or five books about worship. And none of them actually had a definition for me. (laughs) That was kind of frustrating, right? You're talking all about it, but you're not defining it for me. And I think that it gets difficult for a lot of folks because we often define worship by an experience. And worship is not defined ultimately by our experience, but rather worship is defined by God. One of the most fundamental truths we must recognize is that when it comes to worship, God sets the terms. And what does God's word say worship is? If we look at the Bible, there's two sort of different perspectives or different angles that it looks at. First, it tells us that worship is everything. And by that, I mean every act done by a believer in Jesus' name, that is Worship. And so you don't have to come here on a Sunday in order to offer a, a sort of worship to God, right? Look at 1 Corinthians 10:31. Look at this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of the worship of God. So when y'all go to Cracker Barrel or Burger Barn or McDonald's after this, you can worship God there, right? If you eat or drink and give glory, worship to God, right? In one sense, worship is something we do throughout our whole life in everything that a believer does when done in faith. You can't go uh, commit adultery or murder someone and go, well, that's worship, right? It's got to be things done in faith, done in obedience. But you can, as Romans 12 says, live a life of sacrifice, holy and pleasing, of God, and this is an important sort of worship, but it's not the kind of worship I want to talk about. We're in a series on the church, so I want to consider the second sort of worship, which is worship as event, or worship as an event, that it's God's people gathered together to give praise to God. We're in a series on the church. I want us to consider what happens when the church comes together because the Bible says there is a unique kind of praise and glory that God receives when his people are gathered together. Worship refers to anything the church does when we come together that Jesus told us to do. Look at this in 1 Corinthians 14, 26. Consider this. He says, What then, brothers, when you come together... So there's a coming together here, right? Each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. And he says, let all things be done for building up. So that's a command to come together. Or Hebrews 10.25, which talks about believers gathering together. Look at this. Do not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing So here we have, there's us gathered together offering praise to God. Even right now, this is worship. And I think this is the sort of worship John 4 is getting at. Yes, we can worship throughout the week in everything we do in praise and glory to God, doing what Jesus has commanded, but we also worship when we come together with God's people to do what he's called us to do. And with all this background, we can jump into the text and answer question two. So we've looked at what is worship. Now let's ask who can worship? Who can worship? And John 4 offers us this answer. Anyone who has trusted in Jesus as their Savior and their Lord. Those can offer true worship. Those are the ones who can offer true worship worship to God, because John 4 reminds us that God doesn't play favorites when it comes to who from his people can worship him, because worship begins with knowing God. Look at verse 22. Look at this. John 4 verse 22. Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So here Jesus touches on an ancient worship war that was going on between the Samaritans and the Jews. And friends, if you thought that modern worship wars were bad, the Samaritans and the Jews took it to the next level. There was, in the midst of all of this, all sorts of ethnic strife between these people, as many of the Jews saw themselves as pure, and the Samaritans as sort of mixed or half-breed people. But mixed into all of that prejudice, there were also religious issues. In the day because the Samaritans saw themselves as the rightful people of God. In fact, the Samaritans even had their own Old Testament with Genesis to Deuteronomy that was edited to make them the heroes of the story. And this led both groups not to deal with each other and to worship in separate places. In fact, the Samaritans worshiped on Mount Gerizim, which was in Canaan, while the Jews worshiped in Jerusalem. You had separate houses of worship separate places, and they didn't even mingle in lunch afterward. There was no mingling at all. Yet Jesus came to tear that all away. We know Jesus never sinned with human prejudice like the other Jews of his day, but rather Jesus would tell us that true worship is not identified by one ethnic identity or what worship, what mountain they worshiped on, but rather Any and all can come to worship the true God because any and all can come to know the true God. What ultimately mattered was one's identity as one of God's people, their knowledge of the one true God. And in this whole conversation, Jesus has been speaking to this Samaritan woman and calling her into relationship with the one true God. Notice what Jesus says back, John 4, verse 13 to 14. Look at this. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And now, these may not sound like huge words to us, but in Jesus' day, this was huge. Even the Samaritan woman who was living in adultery, even she could come to taste of eternal life and worship God truly by grace through faith. Not through her own works, not through building her life up by the bootstraps, but through receiving God's grace through faith. Both could come to worship the true God in a true way on equal ground because both could know God truly. So what does this mean when it comes to our worship together? I think this means, first, that worship shouldn't be divided by ethnic or cultural lines. Yet, sadly, it often is. And and here's the thing. God's church isn't meant to be black, white, Jew, Samaritan, or anything in between, because red, yellow, black, and white all are precious in his sight. Let me tell you this. There are people in our world that the presence of different colors and cultures in their church would bother them. And let me say this, if the presence of other cultures and colors in church bothers them, then heaven is going to be hell for them. Because, friends, heaven's going to be filled, we're told, with people of every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. People that don't look like you, sound like you, And have some differences in their life for me. Because Jesus died to purchase purchase worshipers from everywhere. Every tribe, tongue, language, and people. Look at John 4, 42. The testimony of the Samaritan people. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we've heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The world, friends, much larger than just America, or just one segment of, su- of, of the South, or one demographic, people. So this means, friends, our worship, at least the basic elements of it, should be able to transcend culture without hindrance. It should be simple enough and clear enough that anyone can partake. Sure, if we were to be dropped into Peru today and worship with our friends there, we'd probably need translation. But friends, let me tell you, Language is a, is a pretty mild thing when it comes to worship, but would the rest of the stuff that, that we do in worship look familiar enough that we could go anywhere among any people and worship among them? I think we should ask ourselves these questions if, are, How much of what we worship is defined by where we live, and how much of it is defined by what God has said? Because true worship crosses all worldly divides. Anyone can come to worship the true God because Jesus came and died and rose that anyone could know the true God. And so in Jesus' day, just like ours, the people who worshiped were divided, but so were the places that they worshiped. Consider the third question. We've seen what worship is. Who can worship? Let's consider third where do we worship? And the answer here, as I said, is both everywhere and everything we do, but also with God's people. Again, I'm talking about the worship within the church. We can worship with God's people. Look at verse 20 to 21. Look at this. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. This is the Samaritan woman speaking. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So notice something. First, the Samaritan woman here has just had her adultery exposed openly. Jesus says, hey, I don't even know you, but I know that you've had five husbands and that the one you're living with now is not your husband. And so in order to to avoid that conversation, she starts talking about Church politics. (laughs) She just goes, Hey, let's talk about the place where we should worship instead of that. Friends, doesn't that sound a lot like many of us? We get confronted by something we don't like, and we're like, Let's just change the subject to something a little more controversial. Let's talk politics. Let's not talk about me. Let's talk about politics or what the news said. And the woman even says, Jesus, why should I listen to you? You say we worship, that the only place for worship is in Jerusalem like the rest of the Jews. And yet, Jesus comes to say something much different, much more radical. But we need to understand that this conversation probably seems strange to us. They're like, mountains? why, Why are they talking about this? But for people who were deeply shaped by the Old Testament, they understood they had a concept of a sacred place, a holy place. And many of those holy places in the Old Testament Were mountains. I mean, I don't have time to look at all of these, but you can write these down and just think about this: um, that if you look at the way the the Book of Genesis talks about Eden, it says that in Eden the water flows downward, which means Eden is up high on a mountain. Even think about how Abraham and the patriarchs. We've been walking through Genesis together, right? And they worshipped on lots of mountains. In fact, Jacob. Worshipped on Mount Gerizim, which is actually right in the background of Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman, is Mount Gerizim, where Jacob worshipped. Mount Sinai, big deal, right? Ten Commandments come down, and even Jerusalem certainly wasn't on flat land in that day. Consider how even the prophets foretold that one day the house of the Lord would be glorified upon a mountain. And so I say all that to say... It's natural that these people would think of mountains as a big deal and think of them as places of worship. And so back in Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman, he says that an hour is coming and is now here when the proper place of worship will no longer be in Canaan or Jerusalem, but rather, verse 24, it will be in spirit and truth. It's almost as if he's contrasting the mountains, the place they worship now, with this place of spirit and truth. No longer the places of the mountain, but wherever spirit and truth are present, that's where true worship happens. Jesus is saying something scandalous in this day, that a day was coming when they would no longer have their sacred space. Think about it. He says even... Jerusalem, where the temple is. A day's coming when they're no longer going to have to go in pilgrimage all the way to Jerusalem for worship. And this isn't the first time Jesus said something like this. He said it, John chapter 2, just two chapters earlier as he was cleansing the temple. Look what he said as he's throwing these people out of the temple, flipping over tables, running them out with whips. Look what he said. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And John tells us, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. John is wanting us to see that Jesus is God's holy place, that Jesus is the true temple. We no longer have to go to Jerusalem and enter into a building to have access to God, but that Jesus has come and he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, that he is the true temple God's holy place. He is where we come to worship God. And that by coming through Jesus, we're told that we're actually being formed into God's holy place as God's holy people. Look at Ephesians 2.22. Look at this. In him, being in Jesus, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see the temple language there, built together, the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. And Jesus in John 4 is speaking in the plural throughout it, meaning Jesus as far is not primarily concerned about this one Samaritan woman's personal habits of worship. He's concerned about a lot more. He's telling us that as believers united to Jesus and indwelt by the Spirit, we are the temple. And when we come together, we become bricks of a new and better temple built upon Jesus as the foundations. Let me apply this to us. We must be reminded that the church is not the building, it's the people. That's what he's saying, right? The Spirit's going to indwell, and wherever the Spirit's indwell, that's where the temple is, and the Spirit indwells us. But so many people use that, use that. Uh, cli- it's kind of become cliche at this point, right? That the church is the building, not the people. Some people use that and minimize the importance of gathering together. But that actually makes gathering together all the more important. Because we are still crossroads, even if we meet across the street or across town, because the people are here. The bricks are built together. If the church is the people and not the building, what does it say if we never worship together with the people? Think about it. The family reunion is still the family reunion, whether it's at Grandma Sue's house or Uncle Joe's house, but if you're not there, something's missing from the family reunion. You. Some of the family is missing from family reunion, and Jesus has come and done what a temple could never do, open wide access to the Father. Jesus died on the cross, and as he did, the veil was torn, and access as sons and daughters became ours, and he rose again so that resurrection hope might be ours. Worship is no longer defined by place, but by the people, and by the one true temple, Jesus Christ being who we worship through. We've seen the what, the who, the where. And let's go to the fourth, when should we worship? When should we worship? Before I give you the answer here, look at verse 23. Look at this. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but I want us to see that worship in spirit and truth, he says, is coming, and he says, and is now here. That Jesus is saying that the time for worship is not later and is not past, but is here and now. It is not later, it is not past, but it is always now. The time is coming and is now here. That that sort of language is all over the New Testament that God's gifts are both already ours and yet not fully as they will be. It's here now we can have access to God and yet even think 40 years after Jesus is saying these words in John 4, the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Romans. And friends, it's still not there. (laughs) Think about this the people would then have to worship in a new way. Jesus is saying that the time for worship is not later, it is not past, it is now. That no matter the culture, no matter the current events, no matter who you are, no matter who's in office, no matter whatever is going on outside of us, it says God is seeking people who will worship him in the here and now. Friends, so many of us say, well, I'm going to worship God when things are good. But then when things are bad, I don't, I don't know. Or, or I, I've heard this from, from several young folks. Like, well, I'm going to commit my life fully to God and worship him fully, but I want to have my fun first. Let me tell you something. God the Father is seeking those who will worship him in the here and now. Not the later and when things look better, whatever that means. Well, I want you to notice again, verse 23 and 24. Look again with me. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Do you see it? It says that true worshipers, those who know God, will worship. They must Worship and spirit and truth. It's not an option for followers of Christ because worship is the language of God's people. It's just the language we speak. The time for worship is now. And yes, while you can worship every day and how you live and work, God also calls us to worship with others, to meet and gather together with God's people on the Lord's day and give ourselves toward worship together. And we need to ask ourselves, what does it say if we have the opportunity to worship with God's people, but then say something else is more important? Because true worshipers must worship, not out of convenience, but out of a deep conviction that this is what God has saved me and called me to do. Finally, I want to close by putting some flesh on this vision. The final question, how do we worship? There's two sort of big principles, and then I want to get specific in five ways that we worship together. What does this look like? First, true worship is by the Spirit. True worship is by the Spirit. Look at verse 24. God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in Spirit and in truth. So, some, some say, well, hey, spirit here is a word for the heart, the inward part of a person saying, hey, God desires authentic worship. And that is true. God desires authentic worship. But I think there's a lot more going on here that this spirit in your Bible, if it's not capitalized, should probably be capitalized in reference to the Holy Spirit working among us. In fact, the Holy Spirit is central throughout the gospel of John. Look back with me. John 3, verse 5. Look at this. Jesus said to Nicodemus, the religious leader who came to him in the night, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says that it's the Holy Spirit that causes our new birth into the kingdom. And I want you to begin to notice that water and Spirit are connected. Remember John 4, 13 to 14? We read it earlier, the waters that sprang up for eternal life. And we're actually told that that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Look at John 7, verse 37 to 39. Look at this. Look at this. This is so important. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And look what John inserts for us. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as of yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So John offers us some insight into Jesus' teaching. and he says, time we see Jesus talk about living or flowing water, he says, Jesus is likely making an allusion to the Holy Spirit. That when he says in John 3 that we're born again by the water and the Spirit, he's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in cleansing us and in recreating us. That in John 4, when Jesus offers living water that wells up to eternal life, that he's talking about he's offering the Holy Spirit to you. John 7, out of the heart flows rivers of living water. And this he said about the Holy Spirit whom Jesus would send. So, Worship must be by the Spirit. It, it is supernatural, and therefore it cannot be manufactured. Friends, you can manufacture an experience for folks. You can get folks all worked up about all sorts of things, but it's not true worship unless the Spirit is there. Friends, let me tell you something. That you can have all the cool gadgets in the world, cool lights and smoke and all these things that can be good gifts, But Jesus says it's the spirit that you need to worship. Jesus didn't simply say, though, worship is by the spirit, but he said worship by spirit and truth. Not just worship that is sincere, but worship that is guided by truth. And what is truth? Here's what Jesus said in his high priestly prayer before he went to the cross. He said this, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus says that true worship must be by the Spirit, and second, true worship must be rooted in the Word. It must be rooted in the Word of God. Let me say this. Despite what many people say, Spirit and Word are never opposed because they always cooperate together in our lives and in our worship. Here's what Jesus said, John 6, 63. Look at this. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Spirit and life. His words are spirit and life. Consider Jesus' final sermon in the upper room. What he said to his disciples as he shared the Lord's Supper. Look what he said. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he's going to teach you. He's talking to his disciples there in front of him all things, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the source of the early apostles' teachings, and thus the New Testament we have, is the Holy Spirit. Why would the Spirit act separate from something he inspired and brought about? Worship by the Spirit is worship rooted in the Bible. Friends, there's a lot that can be said, but let me let me get specific. Let me offer us five ways that we worship together in spirit and truth. Here's five ways, and I'm going to go through these a little quickly. But think about this: first, in worship, we sing the word. We sing the word. So most of us, when we hear worship, we think music, and that's not entirely wrong, but that's not necessarily entirely correct. Because music, singing to God together, is part of worship. But I don't think that simply means that we should just sing anything. Believe me, there's plenty of songs that would not be appropriate for God's people to sing together. There's lots of songs, even on Christian radio today, or so-called Christian radio today, that really has no place among God's people. They sound more like someone singing to their boyfriend than singing to their creator. Jesus is honored with songs rooted in spirit and truth, sang with sincere hearts, but grounded in real, deep truth. Friends, it's not about one genre or one generation over another. So many people seem to think that, oh, well, if the song's newer, it must be better. Friends, Jesus was singing the Psalms, and those are pretty old. (laughs) Nor is it all about the tone, as if somehow the Spirit moves better when it's a slow song versus a faster song. Consider again the Psalms. The Psalms are, if you're one generation, I'll call it God's mixtape of the songs that he would give to us to model worship. For those of my generation and below, it's sort of the Spotify playlist for the people of God. And friends, if you ever read through the Psalms, they explore all kinds of emotions, they lament, they celebrate, they repent, all grounded in spirit and truth. Friends, does our worship explore the full gamut of human emotions, reactions, and responses? That's the worship God would want. And when we sing, friends, God is our primary audience. But there is a secondary purpose, a secondary audience. Look at this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. Look what we're told here. We're told to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So notice he says, we sing and we make melody to the Lord with our hearts, but we also address one another with them. We sing upward and outward to God and to one another for God's glory and our mutual upbringing, upbuilding. This is why we sing out loud together. This is why it's not just a concert with a band up here playing and us just sitting and watching. This is why we sing together and to hear the voices of God's people together is meant to build us up one another. And so it's an encouragement to sing and to sing loud and to consider, does our worship do this? Do we have this perspective or do we treat singing as just a ritual we have to go through like, oh, I just wish this was done so we could move on to something else? Friends, when we gather, we sing the word. But there's more that we do. Second, when we gather, we preach the word. We preach the word. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this one. It's a little self-serving. And two, you'll be here for six hours and you'll never get to lunch on time. So let me me be short with this. Consider what Paul says. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Look at this. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Oh, hear this. Worship doesn't end when the musicians sit down. This is worship right now. In fact, we're told that the king of heaven is watching, and he's not just watching me preach. He's watching us listen to God's word together. And notice how he says preaching isn't meant to look the same all the time either. He says sometimes it's in season, sometimes it's out of season. Sometimes it relates to what's going on in your life, and sometimes it doesn't, at least right at that moment. He says to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. So sometimes the sermons rebuke, sometimes they encourage, and so that means if you're always leaving a church feeling good about yourself, maybe they're not preaching the whole counsel of God. Or if you always have that one preacher you listen to because they just always have an encouraging message. Jesus often didn't have an encouraging message. And sometimes sermons sting a little bit, and they're meant to do it for our own good, for my good, for our good as a family together, because the Word does the work in us. And he says that Timothy was to teach it with complete patience and teaching. If you could pray for pastors in your life, it would be to pray for patience and their preparation every week. Because let me tell you something, Your life will rarely be changed by one sermon. But over a lifetime of true, deep, biblical teaching, there will be a true impact on you and your family for decades to come. When we gather, we preach the word. Third, when we gather, we read the word. We read the word. And friends, this is something absent in many of our churches. We've got the music. The guy stands up and he yells at me for a while, right? But so often, reading the scripture is given so little attention, and yet it's God's words that are inspired, not mine. It's the spirit that breathed out this book, not my commentary. This is why Paul wrote this, 1 Timothy 4. He said this, Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation and to teaching. That's 1 Timothy 4.13. Devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture. Just consider a few weeks ago when we were reading through those genealogies in the book of Genesis, and you wonder two things. One, how, do I, how did he pronounce that? And two, what does this have to do with me? According to 1 Timothy 4, the public reading of Genesis is important for your soul alongside the exhortation and the teaching from it. He says to read the word and to listen to the scriptures with ears and hearts of faith is an act of worship. Friends, do we read the word with a heart to listen or is it just a transition between parts of the service? We Sing the word, preach the word, read the word, forth. when we gather, we pray the word. We pray the word. I think you've caught where we're going with all of this, right? That the Bible should saturate everything we do, because God has inspired it and given it to us, and He calls us to worship in spirit and truth. And God also promises to meet with us when we pray. Remember, Second Timothy, or sorry, Acts 2:42, we looked at last week that God's people devoted themselves to prayer. And what better to pray and what better to guide our prayers than God's Word? Friends, the early church, we see praying and believing God's words in the Psalms. And I'll say this, church-wide prayer is missing for us. We need to really begin to seek the Lord and to work out a time when we can come together and really Let me tell you, sometimes people don't come to prayer meetings because it's an hour of prayer requests and 10 minutes of prayer. Not the other way around. An hour of prayer of really seeking God and seeking prayer that bends his ears because it's grounded in his scripture. And so friends, we must give ourselves to prayer individually in our families and also as a church. And so we'll be looking for times for us to do that together. Finally, fifth, when we gather, we see the Word. Now, you're going to go, what does that mean? What do you mean, see the Word? Well, God's given us two things that are meant to be pictures for us of what the Word's about. They're called ordinances. They're baptism and the Lord's Supper. They're meant to be, if you ever wanted to sort of put flesh on things. God says, hey, don't make images, because one, he's made us in his image. Two, he's given us Jesus as his perfect image. And three, he's given us two pictures to consider. In baptism, we see dramatically displayed Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, and also our burial and resurrection with him. Look at this, Romans 6, 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Notice a few things. That baptism is meant to symbolize death, burial, and resurrection. And it's meant to be something that marks a believer. So there's two things I'll say here, and this will get me in trouble, and that's okay. But baptism is not something that we sprinkle onto babies, the Bible tells us it's something that believers are to go through being immersed and brought back out. And I could give lots more discussion on that, but I've definitely gone long enough. But I would encourage you that if you have not been baptized biblically as a believer, as a testimony to your faith, by immersion, that God's Word would be calling you toward that, to consider that, to study that, to really make that a matter of prayer and commitment for you to to think through that and to, and to consider that because he says that this is done in order to declare to the world your death, burial, and resurrection. But he's also given us the Lord's Supper, a tangible way to declare that Jesus has died and through his broken, his broken body and his shed blood, we have life with God. He's the bread that we live as we eat and the blood that cleanses us. And that means, friends, I think we should celebrate baptism and the Lord's Supper as often as we can. Why would we deprive ourselves of God's Word in picture form? Friends, we've begun taking the Lord's Supper monthly on the first Sunday of the month. And to be honest, we could consider doing it as much as we feel comfortable because it only becomes a vain ritual if we let it. Let me tell you, if we had a baptism of a new convert every Sunday, we'd never get tired of that. But let me just say this, God calls us to worship him and to give ourselves toward his word. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What about us? I want us to close with this. Worship is something that we're, as God's people, are to do, but also something the world is to look in on. It's meant to be strange. It's meant to be different. It's meant to be otherworldly because it's meant to be just strange enough to convict. Look at 1 Corinthians 14.25 in closing. Look at this. Peter or Paul here is talking about an orderly worship service, and he has all these things he mentions here about prophecy and tongues that are really a side point to what his point is, which is, hey, when we come together in orderly worship, here's what should happen. Look at this. But if all prophesy and a non-believer or outsider enters, so this is some sort of service or worship they're entering into, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. In other words, worship is a witness. It's a witness to who God is, And it's meant to declare clearly and orderly who God is. And it doesn't say, they're going to walk in to your worship service and fall down and proclaim, your band is awesome, even if it is. That's not what we want them to walk away hearing. We don't want them to hear, man, the service was hip. That's not what we want them to walk away saying. But rather, we would have them to fall down and proclaim, God is here. And as we worship this morning, would we say that God has been among us and that God meets with us weekly here? Because friends, worship is meant to be strange. Because God is strange. And by that I mean he's holy, he's other, he's different. He's not of this world. Friends, even the Samaritan woman could come and encounter this otherworldly God And that means, friends, the invitation's open to you. If you've never come to know this holy, righteous God, if you're afraid and shamed from your sin, Jesus says he's come that you might have life, have it more abundantly, that he's come to wipe away your sin and your shame so that you can approach this God no longer in fear, but as a son or daughter. And he stands ready to receive you this morning. And he stands ready to receive all of our worship as imperfect as it may be. May we come to him in spirit and truth together. Let's pray. And let's put the sermon into practice and worship together. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good. We don't have to go to a mountain in the Middle East to pursue after you. We don't have to make a pilgrimage hundreds of thousands of miles on our bare, with, with bare feet on rocks hoping that our sufferings and our works will somehow cause you to hear us. We're told that you hear our cry by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone that he is the living water by which we can drink and taste of your goodness and see that you're good and proclaim your works to the world. And so I pray now, if there's anybody here within the sound of my voice who's never tasted of that living water, that right now you would, you would convict their hearts that they would see among this worship that you were really among us and to cry out to you, to rescue them, to meet with them, to be with them. And Lord, I ask that you would be honored as your people worship you as we sing your word, preach your word, read your word, pray your word, and see it in baptism in the Lord's Supper, that you'd be honored in that together. And I pray that you'll receive the sort of worship that you're seeking in spirit and truth. Good to gather together with God's people for worship. Just two quick things before we close. One, thank you for your giving to support uh, this ministry. Just as a reminder we have online giving available on that nice cool looking new slide there, right? And just as a reminder we have a basket at the back. The basket up here has wandered off. So, uh, if you're, so just a reminder, the basket's uh, toward the back up there. And just thank you all for your continued love and prayers and support looking forward to continuing to worship together again if you're new we'd love to meet with you love to connect with you at the welcome desk or just come up and talk to one of us and we close our service with romans chapter 11 verse 36 for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever
1: amen